If you do have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We've been walking through this, not line by line, verse by verse, but we've been hitting some of the big themes, some of the big important ideas from this letter, and the sermon bumper is almost like a mini seminary class, right? So if you've been here each and every week, you will at least, in the midst of probably some bad sermons, you'll at least learn some stuff historically about Colossians. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. I've not given you much time to turn there for those of you who are Bible turners. It's on the screen now. Here we go. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, ESV. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also, you also will appear with him in glory. I want to put a word in front of you. We read several in these uh, four verses of chapter three. I want to put one word in front of you today that's big. It's the word that's so small, a three-letter word, that so so generic, so benign that you may not think about it, but it's this word set. It's a word that you probably use a lot. It's a word that you likely use, uh, have already used today. Think about how you might um, put this in conversation. Maybe you set your alarm so you could make it to church today, even at the 11 o'clock because of what you did last night. Maybe you set your alarm or maybe uh, you've been wanting to get together with someone. So what'd you do? You looked at them and smiled and you set up a time so that you could be with them. Maybe you're so excited about something that's coming together and you looked at someone and you said, hey, it's all set. 25 years ago, when Susan and I started dating, we dated coast to coast. Uh, a year after I met her, I asked her to marry me almost to the very day. And so we were engaged for about five months. So 17 months that w- from when we met to when we married, we were apart except four of those months. So what's the math there? Four, 13 months apart and four months uh, we lived in the same cities. For, so for those uh, 13 months, that year plus, we had a, this long distance relationship. And I'm telling you, like I broke the bank. Uh, we, there weren't cell phones. There were cell phones, but not like cell phones with plans. So we called each other. Uh, She had a car phone first. I got one cell phone later, but there were landline phones. And I remember one night in particular, because I was spending thousands of dollars on my love, that I sat in a, a dark room rolling quarters, nickels, and dimes because she was so expensive. We flew to see each other. We became, as we said, friends of commercial aviation. We were flying. I would fly to her. She would fly Uh, to me, uh, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you. I started wearing green. My roommate, Ray Pelletier, looked in my closet one night. He said, man, you got a lot of green shirts. I didn't tell him because I'm a man. I want to be kind of studly. But Susan had told me that I look good in green. Green was my color. Before I met Susan, I didn't know I had a color. I was set on making this happen. Think about a time when you've been determined, when you've had an intention, when you've had maybe even a plan, and you've been set on something. Paul gives the Colossae church and you and I today a couple of commands here. Then he says that he tells us the reason why. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. By the way, it's always because of what Jesus has done for us. It's in response to that. And then he gives us a promise what will be true. But the command he gives us, the first one here really, is to set to, to be determined. I, I, I love the, the language that we've gotten already in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. It says that, we read it last week, that we, as we have received Christ, we are to walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. Now, the stories vary, right? If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, some of you, you're not, you're here, you're, you have questions. 
So glad that you are. But for every Jesus follower, you would say, hey, here's how I, how I came to begin following Jesus. This is, you know, you're, again, stories vary, but it's, it's done by faith. So walk in him. And it says that you're to be rooted and established. That's what will happen if you walk with him. It's not a flight of fancy. It's not a race. It doesn't happen fast. It's slow. It's steady. It's an it's a intentional embodiment. That's what a walk is, one step in front of the other. And that's the, the way Scripture, more times than not, defines what it means to be with Jesus, to grow in him. And it says that you'll be rooted and established. Now, you would not look at a giant tree, a stately oak tree out in a field somewhere, and you would never think about saying, I'm going to move that oak tree 12 feet over to the left. You wouldn't pull up in your driveway, look at your very own house, and say, I need to move my house back eight feet from the street. You don't say that because a tree is rooted deep and a house is established, right? It's got a foundation and it's in there. And here's the idea. The idea is that that could be your life and mine. That instead of being tossed about, instead of being uh, ever-changing, that we could have some connection, we could have some establishment, we could have some strength in our lives. And of course, when storms come, the Bible promises the person who's greater established, who's got deeper roots, is going to make it through. And that's this idea that we would be settled, that we would be set. Now, what does Scripture tell us? What's the command? Set what? Say it out loud, church. Talk to me. Set your mind. There's another place. Uh, this command is similar to a command uh, that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, take every thought captive. Set your mind, take every thought captive. Now, I'm a feeler. Any feelers in the house? Like there's a place for analytics and logic, but I, at first I'm a feeler. And I see this and I think, set your mind. Like, I like that. It, it seems like freedom. It's happy. But then take every thought captive, just, that just seems exhausting. Because I have a lot of thoughts. Anybody have a lot of thoughts? Like everybody should raise your hand because they say that you have about 185,000 thoughts a day. I think I have a few more than that. I have a very active mind. Maybe some of you are like me, but all of us, all of us, no different, have a bunch of thoughts. That seems exhausting to take every thought captive. And what I have found, and it's led to some level of maturity and sanity and peace in my life, is that what seems exhausting is really a good thing. And it's, it's a possible thing. It's an empowering thing. So set your mind. Both of these, uh, set and take captive, are action verbs that imply that we have a responsibility in our thinking. So think about your responsibility in your thinking. And I want you to think today, if you're in a group that's studying the sermon, you'll have an opportunity in a circle to answer this question. But what kind of mind are you cultivating? And here's the question, what kind of mind would you want to cultivate? Two people suffer with cancer. One person becomes bitter and disheartened. Another person is an example of honesty in front of other people and realness. Two people struggle, struggle with meager, a meager financial income. Maybe I've just described you today. Two people, meager financial income. One person struggles with envy and discontentedness, and the other person radiates with gratitude. Listen, same bank account, same money, but a different set of thinking, a different mindset. Two people get promoted to a corner office, a promotion. 
One person seizes an opportunity to consume, an opportunity for power to control other people. Another person sees it as an opportunity to add value to the company and enhance the lives in the community. Same title, same promotion, same corner office. The difference is in their thinking, in their mind. Two people inhabit a universe where God is present. One person says, I'll have no room for God in my thoughts. Another person says, I will set the Lord continually before me. Same offer of God's availability to both people. The difference is in their minds. What kind of mind do you want to cultivate? Scripture, we could probably expand this, but I want to submit to you today, and in your groups you'll have an opportunity to discuss this deeper. But Scripture gives us a few different ways, different minds that we can develop. One would I want to call the no room for God mind. And this is Psalm 10.4 that says that. There's no room for thoughts of God in my life. None. How easy is it to cultivate this kind of mind? Very. Just fold your arms. Close yourself off. Uh, When you sense something, when you feel something, shut that down. Don't crack the Bible. Don't ever go to church. Don't have self-honest self examination. When you see a movie like Forrest Gump and that feather just floats in the wind and they play that music and you get the chills, just suppress that. Don't think about another life. Don't think about eternity. Don't think about how you have been created for more and how this life ultimately is not going to make sense unless you have faith in the next life. Just suppress all of that and declare like the the wicked man does in Psalm 10.4, I have no room for thoughts of God in my mind. Do you know that you can cultivate that mindset, and it's awfully easy. A second mindset that you and I can cultivate is let's call this the mediocre mind. The half-brother of Jesus in James 1.8 tells us that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You ever heard that before? Like, does anybody want to be unstable? Does anybody want to live with somebody that's unstable? I'm watching a marriage unravel because of the lack of stability of somebody. We can't count on her. She, we can't count on her as a wife and as a mother. We long to be connected to people. We long to be connected to people who have some level of stability. And James is saying that a double-minded man, a double-minded person is like the waves of the sea. Now, usually when you think waves of the sea, you're thinking, oh, good illustration here. But this is meant in a negative way. Like the waves of the sea, it ebbs and it flows. It ebbs and it flows. It's a back and forth. And that's an unstable way to live. You don't build a house. We build houses by the sea, but not on the sea. It's not stable. A mediocre mind, there's a, a Hebrew phrase that is similar, yetzahara, and that is this idea of a wayward heart, a wayward mind, a double mind. Jesus would put, use this language in Revelation, lukewarmness, uh, neither hot nor cold. The properties don't change. You're not fully experiencing something. How easy is it to develop a mediocre mind? Listen, follow the crowd. For us today, it's probably pertinent that, to, to say this. If you want to develop a mediocre mind, read the Bible occasionally. Come to church sporadically. Open up Proverbs 15, 22 and let other people speak in your life. Well, almost never. Psalm 139, never pray, God, search my heart. Get into my mind and know my anxious thoughts. Do all of that half-heartedly. Do all of that sporadically and occasionally and you can develop a mediocre mind. There's a third alternative Consider it today. 
Consider today, even if you're beaten up and bruised by life, even if your struggles with anxiety and depression, even if you're losing hope in how your thoughts could actually be God-directed, there is a third alternative. You can make your mind the dwelling place of God. Do you know that's where God desires to reside? Make your mind the dwelling place of God. Isaiah 26.3, just like Scripture, time and time again, gives a command and a promise, a command and a promise, because like Lauren led us, God, he wants to show that he is true, that you can prove him over and over. Anybody been walking with Christ for a few years, for a long time, and you can say, hey, I, I have proven him over and over again. There's a command and there's a promise. And here it is in Isaiah 26, 3. For he whose mind is stayed on thee, set, mind who's set, you, he will be given, this person will be given a perfect peace. What a promise. What an opportunity we have. There's a country song from the early 2000s. Tim McGraw belts out, I want to live where the green grass grows. Watch my corn pop up in rows. I want to be tucked in bed every night next to you. I want to point my rocking chair to the west and raise my kids where the good Lord's blessed. Can I get an amen? Like apparently God blesses when you move out to the country, right? Even though theologically that's weird because ultimately God loves people and more people live in cities. But anyway, I'm not going to argue with Tim McGraw. But anyway, Tim McGraw, for him and for many of you, look, it's a good thing. You want to get out of the city, out of the craziness. You know, he sings about pulling through a drive-thru, a 99-cent heart attack, and he's, he's, uh, he's eating fast food and in traffic. And for him to have peace, he needs to change his scenery. He needs a place, and he's got a very descriptive place in mind. It's out in the country, and that's where he's going to find his peace. Now, look, a little bit of me buys into that, but here's what I want to tell you, especially for 25 and younger. No place. No geography place will give you peace. Oh, I want to get to the city. I got talents. I'm an artist. I'm going to get to the city. Yeah, I'm going to have peace. Oh, man, I'm tired. I'm, 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 it, my life's a country song. I need to get out of this place and out into the country. I need to move to Nashville like everybody's moving. I need to get out of Mississippi. I need to, I need to go to this place. And I'm old enough to tell you, I'm just being a pastor here. I'm not ch- quoting a f- first necessarily. But no place, there's no ge- geographical place that will give you peace. All right? There's one right here, right here. Because if you don't have it here, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. No matter where you reside, if it doesn't reside here. And so I know, look, I know this is tender. I know for some of you, I'm entering into a very tender space with emotional issues and mental health and the challenges that we experience. I'm inviting you today to think about how you can partner with God And that you have an alternative where you could make your mind the dwelling place of God. And to the extent that you do, you will find peace. What kind of mindset do you want to have? The word here, the Greek word from in Colossians 3, that simple word set, here it is. It's the word phronio. And this idea here is continuous action. Continuous action. I would use my imagination to say along with continuous action, I think it implies small moments. Continuous action, small moments. Set your mind, set your mind. Continuously set your mind. On your commute, you could view it as traffic and congestion and rude drivers that entice you to make a non-faith-based hand gesture toward them. 
or you could see it as an opportunity to reflect on the goodness of God, that this is the day the Lord has made and you can rejoice and be glad in it. You could see your day of the task and the to-do list. You could see it as a dread, as an overwhelming obligation as I have felt at times, or you can see it as an opportunity Every meeting, every phone call, every deadline, you can meet God and God can meet you there. The person that served you, the server that got your order wrong and wasn't apologetic about it, you can see them that way or you can see them as someone God loved enough to send his own son. I am finding that when I set my mind that God does a work that he couldn't do otherwise in me. Here's what I'm finding and confessing as well as empowering. Paul said this, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You know, when you follow Jesus, he affects how you see people. And he wants to change your mind so that you don't see people from a worldly point of view, that you see their dignity, you see their worth, and you see their value. He has made them, and that's what a mind set on him can bring to you. That can be a gift to you. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What would it look like if you brought Jesus into the life of your mind? When it comes to decisions, do you ever want God to just give you direction easily on something that you're wondering about? There's been several times in my life I've had to make some important decision. I feel like there's a, a lot at stake. I feel like that there's a lot riding on it. And I don't know what to do. And I'm asking God, I've asked God in the past for like a postcard in the mail. Like, God, just send it to me what I, what I need to do in this scenario. And here's what I've learned as I set my mind. I have learned that God could send me a postcard in the mail. A few times in my life, I feel like he has. But for the most part, hear me now. Somebody needs to hear this. He wants you to grapple with the decision. He wants you to think and reason and struggle to go to wise friends who know you well and for them to give you counsel. He wants you to learn to make a decision and stick with it and take responsibility for the choice that you've made. He wants you to assess the future and to evaluate your motives. And when God does that, he can do a work in you that he cannot do if he just sent you a postcard in the mail. And listen, that requires that you set your mind. So the question is, Set your mind on what? What does scripture say? Anybody got the Bible open? Set your mind on the things above. Not, there's a contrast, not on the things of earth. Set your mind on the things above. So think about it. Let's ask ourselves the question, how easy is that? How easy is that to do? I'd say challenging. Because we live in this world of clutter and noise and distraction. We live in a world that's empirical. We want to know what we can see and touch and taste and smell and feel. But yet, God says, think about this other world. And that is what I want you to set your mind on. That is what I want you to set your affections on. Set it on what you can't see. Set it not on things. And what's natural for us and why Jesus talks so much about things, stuff, possessions, money, is because that's where our hearts go. That's where it goes. 
guys wrote a book. They're two Harvard MBA guys, and they both, really cool story, they both became followers of Jesus. And they wrote a book called God and Money. And in this book, they talk about three ways that we approach money. Three ways or three views of three things that are in us. It reflects our relationship to money. The first is that uh, first type of person is a spender. And a spender looks to money, drug-like, as satisfaction for today. A saver, by contrast, looks to money, drug-like, as security for tomorrow. Now, how many of you spend money? Some money, right? How many of you, like every hand goes up, how many of you save money? All right, both are good. Both are taught and lauded in Scripture as necessary and good. These Harvard MBA, I mean, they went to Harvard, they got an MBA, they're smart enough to know that. But a steward is someone who doesn't go to money as a drug at all, but someone who sees money as a tool, and it's temporary. And so we tend to think, well, spender, satisfaction today. Jesus railed against that. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, uh, acquiring wealth and going for wealth and living for wealth is perilous. Uh, you, you can, it says get into all kind of destruction by choosing to live that way. And if it's a drug for you, that's what you're, you're, you're looking to it to provide you with satisfaction. But in Luke 12, Jesus told a parable and it was a warning. You know, when you love somebody, you warn them. And Jesus warned people. He warned you and I, even today, it rings out this. Do not think that a man's life consists of the abundance of his possessions. In other words, this story in his parable was someone who got a lot of money and got more money. And what was he doing? He was stockpiling it. He started building bigger barns. How much money do you need in the bank? What's the answer? You know that churches have to answer that question. We've never had a lot of problem with that. But churches need to ask themselves. You need to ask yourself, how much money do you need in the bank? The idea there is that it could become a drug. It can, have us, it can give us a feeling, but here's what I want to say based on this, based on this book, God and Money, that I encourage anybody to read who has interest in learning to become a better steward. Set your mind not on things of the earth, that phrase from Colossians 3. It means that you look at money not as satisfaction nor security because Jesus is both. We continue to invite you away from consumerism, away from materialism, away from the fear that Jesus is not enough into a journey of generosity that as you learn to give, as you learn to save, as you learn to live, that he will be a provider for you. Sometimes in telling inspirational stories, I may have given the wrong idea that we are about that the goal here is that a handful of rich people would give huge gifts so the church could be a blessing in the community. And the goal for me as a pastor of Fondren Church is that 100% of us would learn to give. That 100% of us, that we all would trust Jesus on what it looks like to be generous people. We teach the tithe. We teach the tithe and the offering. We teach giving God first and the best and watch him bless the rest. Martin Luther said that in following Jesus, there's three conversions. The conversion of head, where you're convinced that Jesus is Lord. The conversion of heart, where you begin to love and trust him. And then the conversion of your pocketbook, where you actually trust him in the day-to-day. Set your mind not on the things of earth. The only way to remove the grip that things have on you. The only way. Remember the famous teaching of Jesus, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's not the reverse. It's not where your heart is, there your treasure will be. 
In other words, intentionally have a plan of how you'll be a giver. Move away from the world's pattern of consumption and hoarding to giving. Don't try to do it with the leftovers. Give God first. Give God best. I want to to submit a word to you as we begin to round toward home. Set, set your mind, set your mind on not the things of earth, but the things that are eternal. There's an important word that the Bible uses. It's a word you use every day. It's this word, remember. And we're told to remember. We're told to remember several things. To set your mind is to intentionally put something in front of you and to remember it. Some of you ask me about the joy and the challenge of preaching. I don't know if you're trying to take my job or you're just interested or you want to know how to pray for me, but here's my day. My day or my week, is it's in twofold. It's preacher and it's pastor. And preacher is what most of you see. And preacher, preaching requires about 20, 25 hours a week. I touch the sermon on a Monday. I put it in front of me. I set it in front of me and I work hard. And I've got about 12 to 14 pages. It's a lot. And then by Monday at lunch, I set it aside for several days so I can be pastor. I can have appointments and staff meetings and I can troubleshoot and problem solve and just be a pastor, do the things that that pastors do. And depending on how the week goes, hopefully by Thursday, if it's been a good week and the staff are doing their job, I can pick up that sermon again and set it in front of me. And then my wife knows this by Saturday, we call it Saturday night fever. Like there's nothing else in front of me. It's the sermon, it's the sermon. I set it in front of me and I'm hoping to get it deep into me so that I can preach it somewhat meaningfully to you. But when it goes, when the process goes for hours a week at a week in a rhythm, it's not random, but in rhythm, it may seem random, but the rhythm is, you know, 12 to four, 14 to 12 pages, down to seven pages, down to five pages. And by Saturday, it's down to three pages. And those three pages, I've almost got it ready. I'm just nervous. It's pregame jitters. I'm, there's a weight to it. There's a passion to it. And I set it in front of me and I'm intentional about it. I'm hoping to remember and recall the important things that God would have for us. Remember, scripture says, remember 1 Corinthians 11, this do in remembrance of me. Remember the sacrifice for your forgiveness. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, the people that have gone before you. God, give us leaders. Give us women and men who lead well and serve with integrity. Remember your leaders. Ecclesiastes 12, a man named Solomon who had wasted many, many years of his life. And by the way, if anybody's wasting years right now, it's not too late. You can repent no matter what you've done, no matter the time wasted, repent today. And he's saying, Solomon's saying to young people, Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't waste a bunch of years, young people. Psalm 119, remember me, remember God in the night watches. Now, why night watches? Because depression can be so great. The psalmist would later use the phrase, the terror of the night. Some of you know this, but nighttime is harder. When there's been pain in your life, when there's loss, betrayal, rejection, devastation, It's the night, but remember God when you're at your lowest. Set him before you. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath. Listen to me, you need a day of rest. Hey, any workaholics here? Look at me. You need a day of rest. Revelation 2, this is personal for me. 
God tells us to remember your first love. You and I, man, we never graduate, we never get so advanced that we don't need to remember that it's ultimately and simply a love relationship. That my life is an offering to God who loved me and gave his life for me. There's really not a lot to add to that. I need to remember that. Acts 20. Remember what Jesus said. Well, what did Jesus say? Acts 20 says, remember what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Set your mind on that. Deuteronomy 6. When you prosper and you become proud, when you establish a livelihood, when you build fine houses, when your silver and gold increases, when your herds and flocks grow, when all that you have is multiplied, Deuteronomy 6 tells us that you can become proud and you begin to think that your wealth is from you. And it's not. So you, I'd like to have that problem, but anyway, remember, remember that it's God that allows you to produce this wealth. So to set your mind in one way is to remember. Mark Batterson, a pastor at the National Theater Church in Washington, D.C. area, said something years ago that sticks with me. Maybe you've heard me say this. He says, the problem that we have, one of the great problems that we have, is that we remember the things that we we should forget, and we forget the things we should remember. I'm going to say it again without stumbling. The problem we have often is that we forget the things that we should remember, and we remember the things that we should forget. Does that resonate with anybody? Do you know there's some things that you need to forget? Not long ago, I was at an event, thousands of people, and hundreds of us were in a section filing out, and I I noticed a commotion. There was a a celebrity in our midst, a, a young man who's now an NFL athlete making millions of dollars. And as he was right there, I noticed him. I was trying not to make a big deal of it myself, but across the way, a young man, let's call him drunk, obnoxious guy. <laughs> drunk, drunk, obnoxious guy yelled to NFL athlete. And he called him a name. A name based on something he had done when he was 18 years old. Terrible mistake. And he called him by that name. And I remember thinking, man, this guy, NFL guy making millions, could walk about 12 feet over and reduce this guy to rubble with one punch. And somehow, I mean, honestly, I shouldn't admit this, I don't even know if I would have the restraint in that moment to not do or say anything or react with anger. And he held back. He heard it, and other people heard it. And I thought, in this scenario, drunk, obnoxious guy is the devil. He's Satan, who's not red man in a suit with a pitchfork. The scripture tells that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. Do you get that? In other words, the brethren is the family of God. The brethren includes the sistren. It's the brothers and the sisters. It's those of us who follow Jesus who've been forgiven. But the enemy's work, and it's chief among his work, is to accuse the brethren to say, hey, you remember what you did that we can find on YouTube? Remember that thing you did? I'm going to, because I'm drunk and obnoxious, I'm going to call it out in you. And I couldn't help but think how we're all on a journey to forget things that we shouldn't remember. And I don't know who that is today, but you are not your worst mistake. And I'm thankful I'm not any kind of celebrity 
where any of my past mistakes are out there for public consumption. Anybody else like that? Man, I'm just glad. I just, I take, I take joy in that. And so whoever's low and whoever's beat up, whoever is, you're letting the devil win. The drunk, obnoxious guy is winning with you now and calling you out and saying that that's who you are, and it's not. In Jesus, listen to me, you're not the abortion that you had. You're not the adultery that you committed. You're not the domestic disturbance that you inflicted. You're not the pain that you have caused. And to set your mind on him, to put your affections, some English translations, your affections above, look at what Jesus has done for you and remember it. Forget, forget what you don't need to remember, but remember what you need to forget. Let's pray. As Lauren and the team come up in the stillness of this moment, would you just uh, seek and set in your own way? Seek what God might be stirring up in you and set a course of how you could walk out of here today be different. It's interesting in Romans 12, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Y'all ever heard that? But it doesn't say transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. It's subtle, but it's massive. You and I, we don't have to try to lean toward positive thinking to change our world. We partner with God. We partner with God, and as we partner with God, we become transformed. And it will not happen in you without God working in your mind. Father, would you help us today? Would you help us learn to set? We set alarms and set appointments and declare that it's all set. Sometimes with excitement and intention and determination. But we're occasional and sporadic and lukewarm and double-minded when it comes to what's most important. Lord, for forgetful folks who are not remembering your love and what you've done, I pray you bring us back. For the accusations to the family of God that come from the enemy, help us to set what we need to set aside to embrace who you declare us to be and you're at the right hand of the Father. You are our advocate. You have taken on our sin. You have paid the penalty for it. And as we set our course in partnership with you, the power of it can be released from us. And Lord, I pray in these moments that we have, before lunch, before other things, that you would allow us to be present here, to set our mind on these moments of worship, Lord, allow us to be obedient, whether it's just simply the song that we sing as we stand or if it's coming to kneel in front of the church today, in front of you, before you, or it's embracing one of us, Lord, in prayer, I pray that you help us to give this time to you. In Jesus, amen. Would you stand? You come today if we can pray for you.